0: If you have a Bible today, I want to encourage you to grab it, and we're going to be in the New Testament book of Romans today, and if you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you, and that Bible is our gift to you. And you can take that Bible home, and we want you to be able to have a copy of God's Word and read it on a daily basis, and so you can have that Bible. But Romans chapter 15 is where we're going to be, and I want to encourage you to join us for our Christmas Eve service this coming Friday at 5 o'clock. It's going to be... A one hour or less service. We want to be respectful of your time. We know that you're probably going to be still wrapping some presents and having Christmas Eve dinner, but we don't want to forget what this season is all about and we want to celebrate the birth of Christ uh, together on Christmas Eve. One service, five o'clock, and it's going to be a great time together. This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 15 and we're going to center in on this subject today. Hope is here. Let's start reading in verse number six. If you are ready today, would you say ready? Verse number six. That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another. Everybody say receive. As Christ also hath received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision. That was a, a reference point for the Jewish people, that he was the minister, a servant of the Jewish people, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Aren't you thankful for his mercy today? As it is written, for this cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, he says, rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him and all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. And then, in verse number 13, it says this Now, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's have a word of prayer together today. God, thank you for this day that you've given us. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you in this time, in this moment. Thank you for the services that we've already had this weekend. God, I pray that you would speak to us in a great way in this time together. I pray that we would understand today that we can have a hope that is an anchor for our soul So that no matter what storms of life we may encounter, we can have that stability that only you provide. We love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said today, how many of you have already watched a Christmas movie this season? Anybody like that? Already watched a Christmas movie? How many of you would say, not yet, but I'm planning on it. Anybody like that? Not yet? Okay. I remember growing up, my family always wanted to watch one Christmas movie in particular. And it was the classic Christmas movie It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life, right? Very classic movie. And I kind of like It's a Wonderful Life. But I want you to know today, there are better movies than It's a Wonderful Life for Christmas, right? And uh, growing up, I liked the movie The Grinch. Any Grinch fans? The original Grinch. And uh, The Santa Claus, Scott Calvin, Tim Allen, you know, classic, great movie. But maybe one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. Elf, right? Okay, you got to watch Elf. And a great Christmas movie. But there was one particular Christmas movie growing up that my parents would want us to watch sometimes. And as a young elementary boy, this movie was cruel and unusual punishment. And that movie is A White Christmas. This movie uh, will take the Christmas spirit right out of you when you are a young child, okay? Now, I know that I might be in the minority on this because I read recently that the recording industry Association of America, which sounds pretty official, they decided the uh, top 1,000 songs uh, from uh, the, the 1900 uh, to 2000, they picked the top 1,000 songs, the most influential songs of that era, that century, and number two on the list, White Christmas, the song White Christmas, so very influential song, right? And I thought that was interesting because really White Christmas, that song is all about, is all about hope. I'm dreaming for a white Christmas and hoping and dreaming for days that are merry and bright. And I think that selection by the Recording Industry Association of America is indicative of a deeper reality for uh, human beings in that we are searching for hope and we're hungry for hope and longing uh, for uh, better days before us. I thought about this verse this week in the book of Acts when Paul is on a, on a ship and he's heading to Rome as a prisoner and they're surrounded by a storm. And the Bible says in Acts 27, verse number 20, and when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. All hope was gone. And I think often uh, this is where we find ourselves, and I'm hearing this conversation repeated amongst followers of Jesus, that, man, the world is so dark and culture is so bad and my relationships are too messed up and and things are just too uh, gloomy. I don't know if anything is going to get any better, and we're living a life often without hope. And a life without hope can be a very discouraging way to live. Very discouraging. Even uh, President Snow from the Hunger Games, any Hunger Games fans in here? A lot of movie references this morning. Uh, He said this, hope, it is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. Even he knew the power of hope. And what I believe today that the world so desperately needs and even the church so desperately needs is an injection of true biblical hope. Not, not hope as the world describes it or hope as the world sees it, but what does the Bible have to say about hope for uh, followers of Jesus? Now, the Christmas story really is a great story about hope. Sometimes we talk about, you know, the day in which we're living is a dark time and there's a lot of evil going on in the world today. But I want you to know the same is true when Jesus entered into the world in Bethlehem. It was a dark time in history. Herod the Great was ruling. He was a wicked, evil, uh, murderous man. He, He murdered anyone that he thought would be a threat to his throne. He murdered his own wife. He murdered his own brother. He even murdered his own two sons. And this is why Caesar Augustus famously said that it would be better for you to be one of Herod's dogs than one of his sons. An evil man. And when Herod found out that Jesus, the king of the Jews, was born in Bethlehem, that was a threat to his throne. And he felt very insecure about that. And so what he decided to do was was order the onslaught and the murder of every baby boy in Bethlehem. Dark time, would you agree? But in the middle of this darkness, the angel came to Joseph and said this. In Matthew one twenty three, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. In other words, I know this is a dark time. I know there are discouraging situations all around us and it seems as though evil is prevailing. But the reason today we can smile and say hope is here is because Emmanuel, God with us and hope is here because Jesus is here. That God became man and took upon him the form of a servant, and he dwelt among us. And this is why today we have hope. Now, a lot of times when we talk about hope in the Bible, or when we talk about hope in life, we have a kind of a misunderstanding and confusion about what hope actually is, right? And uh, sometimes even amongst Christian circles, we have trouble defining what hope is. Uh, The other day, my wife Katie was driving our children to school, and uh, Blakely asked, Mom, what is fog? And uh, they were kind of driving through some fog. And Katie said, well, it's kind of like a cloud on the ground. But my oldest daughter, Liv, said, well, actually, Blakely, if you want to understand fog, you have to understand that there is precipitation and there is also uh, condensation. And she started to kind of tell her some of those things. And, I, and Katie said that Blakely was starting to get a little frustrated. And she said, I just don't understand. And Liv said, well, Blakely, what do you not understand? And she said, I don't understand you. <laughs> That's what I don't understand. I don't understand. She was going frustrated. And I think a lot of times if we're honest, We can find ourselves in a season of spiritual frustration and we're frustrated with our faith. And often I believe it's because we have a misunderstanding of what biblical hope is. Because when we truly understand what hope is according to the Bible, we have reason to smile and move forward with a spirit of joy and expectation. A lot of times faith and hope, they get blurred together. You know, the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so what's the difference between faith and hope? I remember growing up, my dad got us together and he said, got all of our family together and he said, I I have an announcement to make to the family. I bought us tickets to a Laker game and uh, we were excited about that. That was a great announcement. It happened to be the Laker game that Kobe Bryant scored 62 points in three quarters because he's the greatest of all time. So it was a great, great time great memory but when my dad said we're going to a Lakers game we believed him I trusted him that would represent faith I took him at his word but then when we uh, knew that we were going to a Laker game we were filled with joy and anticipation looking forward to that day that is hope And so faith is to believe, but hope is to walk with expectation and joy. And so as followers of Jesus, we can have faith and believe and take God at his word, but we can also move forward and walk with expectation and joy, looking for that blessed hope because Jesus came once, but he is coming again and he will call his children home. And so we can have hope and we can smile uh, at the fact that Jesus is returning. Now, uh, we come to the book of Romans today, and Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome. And it's kind of a different letter than typically Paul would write. He's really laying out a foundation of what he believes. It's more of a doctrinal statement than anything. Paul's saying this is what you need to believe about salvation and what you need to know about salvation. And there's this common theme throughout the book of Romans, and the theme is hope. Over ten times in the book of Romans, Paul brings up this idea of hope. And he's telling the church, hey, you have reason to move forward with this confident expectation of good. Uh, one author, uh, John Broger, he said this, uh, the hope that God has provided for you is not merely a wish. Uh, neither is it dependent on other people, possessions, or circumstances for its validity. Instead, biblical hope is an application of your faith that supplies a confident expectation in God's fulfillment of his promises. Biblically, that is the definition of hope the confident expectation of good. Sometimes we think that hope is just wishful thinking, but hope is not wishful thinking or positive thinking or uh, hope is not just, man, uh, I hope that I win the lottery. How many of you would say that would be pretty nice, right? I hope that I win the lottery. I hope that uh, I get a great Christmas present. Uh, Biblical hope is not uh, uh, Googling, when will I get my next stimulus check, okay? Uh, That is not biblical hope. Anybody been there, okay? That is not biblical hope. But Paul is going to write this letter, and he's going to talk about what biblical hope actually is. And so as we look to Romans chapter 15, I want to give us four reasons that Jesus came, four reasons we celebrate Christmas, and in these reasons, I think and believe that we find great hope. And so number one today, if you are taking notes, number one is this. Jesus came to bring harmony. Jesus came to bring harmony. Notice what the Bible says in verse number six. Everybody with me this morning? I want to encourage you to keep a Bible open and ready as we uh, dive into these verses. Uh, Verse number six, it says this, that ye may with one mind and one mouth. The idea here is unity, uh, that there is a congruence in the way that you are living your life. With one mouth and one mind, glorify God. You know what ties the church together? It's not a political affiliation. What ties the church together is Jesus Christ. We are united under one banner, under one person. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And with one mind and with one mouth, we can glorify not a politician, but our Savior, Jesus. That's what unites us. That's why the church is a diverse group in a mosaic of people that comes from all different backgrounds of life, united under one common goal, Jesus, in the worship of him. And then he says this, wherefore, because of this, verse 7, wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And so he says, receive us. Now, in the church at Rome, there was uh, some division and dissension taking place, very diverse group. There was young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, and they were struggling to get along. And so Paul writes to them and he says, hey, you need to receive one another. And that word receive in the original language in the Greek, it's it's kind of a fun word to say. It's the word proslambano. Everybody look to your neighbor and say, pros lombano. There you go. You learned a Greek word today. And here's what it means. Here's what that word receive means. It means to draw in close, to bring in close. Katie, can you come up here and help me for a second? And uh, th- this idea uh, of receive, to welcome, to embrace, to draw in close. Now, I'm not much of a hugger, I would say. How many of you would say that you are a hugger? Okay, ironically, I, I preach this in the first service. I got more hugs today than I think I, I have in any Sunday in the history of our church. Uh, but I would say I'm not a, not a huge hugger, not against hugs, but just I have, I'm a fan of social distancing, right? I just want to make sure I keep my distance. But what Paul is saying here is this word received, uh, this is not the idea. It's not just looking at someone and acknowledging them. Okay, like I acknowledge your presence. Like, uh, that's, not, that's not the idea. The idea is not like, hey, what's up? and keeping my distance. The idea of receive is not even, let me give you a a warm handshake and look you in the eye. And uh, that's not even the idea of receive. The idea of receive in verse number seven is to draw in close and embrace. Now you can see why I chose Katie for this illustration and not someone else, right? Draw you in close and embrace. That is the idea of receive. Let's give it up for my wonderful wife, Katie. He's saying, receive, receive, bring you in close. Uh, Paul said this to his friend Philemon. Philemon had uh, a slave named Onesimus, and he ran away, and Paul was trying to bring about reconciliation and restoration. And he said this in Philemon 17, if thou count me therefore a partner, he says, receive him as myself. What was he saying? Draw him in close, love him, honor him, uh, serve him, show that kindness uh, that I have shown uh, to you. Now, this was not easy in the Roman assembly, because there was great animosity in a world of difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jewish people hated the Gentiles. The Gentile people hated the Jews. By the way, there's two classifications in the Bible of people. There's Jew and Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so that would be us today. And so uh, the Jews and the Gentiles had great animosity. And Paul's saying, hey, you need to show harmony. That's why Jesus came. You need to receive one another in love. By the way, this is what Jesus prayed for just hours before he went to the cross. You know what was on Jesus' mind hours before he went to the cross? You. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. He was praying for you. Which, by the way, every time I think about John 17 and the high priestly prayer, I'm just overcome with the goodness of God and the grace of God and the love of God for us that he prayed. Jesus prayed for me. It says this in John 17, verse number 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. In other words, I'm praying for those that will come to know me. I'm praying for those that will accept Christ, that they all may be one, praying for their unity. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus was praying for our unity and harmony. That's why he came. But, but thankfully, Jesus not only commanded this kind of love and harmony, he exemplified it. He, he, he gave us the perfect pattern. Notice how Paul says it in verse number 7. He says, receive ye one another as Christ also received us. I'm so thankful today that Christ received me and that he brought me in close and that he met me with a warm embrace. I'm thankful that the Bible says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. I'm thankful that the Bible says in Acts 17 that we worship a God that is not far from any one of us. Hey, can I tell you today that if you want access to God, that access is available and he wants to draw nigh to you and close to you and he receives us. He brings us in. We, we do not worship a God that stays at a distance. We worship a God that wants to know everything about you and wants to hear from you and loves you with an immeasurable love. He receives us in. And so Paul says, hey, you can receive others as Christ received you. And then he goes on in verse number eight. He says, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister or a servant of the circumcision, which again, that was a title for the Jews. He was a servant of the Jews. Think about that for a second. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, creator of the heavens and the earth, maker of the universe, he came to a humble manger, to essentially a cave in an obscure city called Bethlehem, and he came as a servant. He came to serve. That is a different kind of king. In fact, the Bible puts it this way in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the son of man, that was a title for Jesus, the son of man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many—that's why he came. We we worship today a different kind of king. I read an interesting story this week. It was about a man from San Francisco in the 1800s. His name is Joshua Norton, and he came to San Francisco kind of right in the middle of the California Gold Rush. And he was a real eccentric and kind of a flamboyant character. And he went through a. Uh, financial crisis, a difficult time. And because of that, something happened in his mind. Something triggered in his mind. And he declared himself to be the king of the United States. And he just decided, I am the emperor of the United States. He just declared himself to be king. And uh, he really, truly believed that. But what makes the story interesting is that the citizens of San Francisco... They kind of just went along with it, and uh, they treated him with honor and respect, and anywhere Joshua Norton, King Norton went, uh, they let him eat for free. He ended up making his own currency, and uh, many businesses and establishments would let him use his own uh, currency. If you go to San Francisco today, there's this, there's this plaque, and it might be kind of hard to read on this, but it says, pause traveler and be grateful for Norton the first emperor of the United States. And as an added bonus protector of Mexico. And he just kind of gave himself that title that that's who he was. And Joshua Norton, when he died over 10,000 people attended his funeral. And so he just kind of Uh, Garnered this following and people came and honored him as king But we know today joshua norton was never the king of the united states (laughs) Uh, We uh, established as a nation to get away from having a king and we do not have a king There is only one true king today And this is the message of christmas that I want you to hear and remember There is only one true king and he is the king of all kings and the lord of lords And his name is jesus christ and he is a different kind of king because he is a king that came to serve Serve and came with humility and you cannot have harmony without first laying the foundation of humility and so often we're not experiencing harmony in our relationships because we're lacking that kind of humility like jesus to just serve how can i serve how can i be a blessing how can i show kindness how can i uh, uh love you in this situation and so uh, paul is saying hey the reason jesus came down to earth was to bring harmony to serve uh, to show love. Uh, by the way, uh, the Bible says this in Luke 15 too, And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, talking about Jesus, saying, This man, speaking of Jesus, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. They were criticizing Jesus because he received, there's that word, uh, he received sinners. And when a Christian refuses to receive another Christian, what we're saying essentially is this. I know that Christ received the worst of sinners, but I actually have a higher standard than Jesus. Because Jesus went and he ate with the publicans and sinners, and he received them, brought them in close. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise wisdom. The Bible says that we should withdraw ourselves from a brother that walks disorderly. But but the point that Paul is making here is that we need to go out of our way to show loving kindness to the people around us and demonstrate the love of Christ to the people in our lives. Jesus came down to earth. To bring harmony. Aren't you thankful? Here's the second thought today. Jesus came down to earth for this reason. He came for the outsider. Jesus came for the outsider. Now, this might seem obvious to us, and this might seem like, yeah, this makes total sense. Jesus came for the outsider. But this is something that would have been uh, shocking to the first century audience, specifically in the church at Rome when they were reading this letter that that Paul sent. Notice in verse number 9, it says this. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Up until this point, the Jewish audience would have been uh, tracking along just fine. They would have been in agreement with Paul. But then when Paul said that the Gentiles also, the Gentile, remember, non-Jewish people, they will glorify God because God has shown them mercy. What Paul was saying is that salvation is not just for a certain group of people, but salvation is for all of humanity. And Jesus died on the cross, and the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.10 that he is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. And so what Paul was saying is that he is the Savior for all of humanity. Now, the Jewish people in this time and context would have thought, you mean Those that we consider unclean, those that we consider unworthy, they were the outsider. But Paul was making this point that Jesus came for all of humanity, even the outsider. Now, to prove Paul's point, he's going to use Scripture. And I love verses 9 through 12 in Romans 15 because what Paul does is he quotes four Old Testament passages back to back to back to back. Because when Paul wanted to prove a point, he wasn't just going to talk about what he thought. He was going to say this is what God said. By the way, whenever you want to prove a point, whenever you want to make sure you're going down the right path, always go back to Scripture. Always go back to the Word of God because The Bible says in Isaiah that the word of God will not return void. And so Paul's going to go back to scripture. Do you want to see it? Notice what he does. Verse number nine. He says, And the Gentiles, they might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, as it is written in the Old Testament. As it is written. So what he's doing is he's quoting scripture For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, He saith, so again, here's another scripture. Again, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, here's another scripture. Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, here's another scripture. Isaiah said that there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. And so four times Paul quotes scripture. He quotes from the law, he quotes from the prophets, and he quotes from the Psalms. And he's saying, hey, it's always been God's plan to come for the outsider, even the Gentile. This is the heart of Jesus that we see demonstrated over and over again. This is, this is his heart. The Bible says in Matthew 7, verse number 24, it says, and from thence he arose, speaking of Jesus, and he went into the borders of Tyree. In Sidon, And he entered into a an house, and he would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. Now, you might be thinking, what's the significance of this verse? That Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The reason why I bring this verse up today, the reason why it's significant, is because, as far as we can tell, this is the only time in all the gospel records that Jesus ever ventured outside the borders of Israel, Tyre and Sidon would have been known to be a Gentile pagan region, known for its wickedness, known for its idolatry, and Jews would never go into this region. But here we see that Jesus went directly there on purpose. Why? He was showing that he has a compassion for all people, even the outsider. And by the way, if Jesus has compassion for the outsider, so should we. And if Jesus could forgive the inexcusable in us, then we can forgive the inexcusable in others. And we can move forward with a love that demonstrates for all people. And so Jesus came to bring harmony. Jesus came for the outsider. Here's the third uh, reason Jesus came today. Number three, Jesus came to fulfill his promise. Aren't you thankful that he always keeps his promises? This is, this is something that you see all throughout the Christmas story, uh, that Jesus is faithful to keep his promises over and over again. Now, I want you to see the particular promise in verse number 12. Everybody with me? Verse 12. He says, and again, Isaiah says, so he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. There shall be a root of Jesse. Now, of all the four verses that Paul quotes, this is the only explicit promise. He says, here's the promise from Isaiah. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. So he talks about this root of Jesse that is going to rise to reign. I love this. This is a beautiful Christmas verse. That are root of Jesse. We have to answer a couple of questions. First, who is Jesse? Jesse was the father of the Old Testament King David. And we know that God made a very powerful and important promise to King David. Do you remember the story when David wanted to build the temple and uh, he was making plans to build the temple and it came time to build the temple and God said, You can't do it because you're a man of war, you have blood on your hands, you're not going to be able to build the temple, but your son Solomon will be able to build the temple. But don't worry, David, because I have something uh, far greater in store for you. I have a better plan for you. By the way, how many of you know that whenever God says no, there's typically a greater yes that is yet to be seen? And God says, I have something better for you, David. Let me give you this promise. And this was the promise that he made to David that links us all the way back to the book of Romans. Okay, here it is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 12 and 13. In fact, if you like underlining and marking in your Bible, I would write this reference down next to Romans chapter 15, verse number 12. It says this in 2 Samuel 7. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. And so he says, David, even when you're asleep with the fathers, even when you're long gone, I'm going to establish a seed after you. There will be one that is to come after you, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. There's a future kingdom coming, David, and he shall build a house for my name, far greater than just an earthly temple. He's going to build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so what he's saying is, David, hey, let me make you a promise. Uh, There will come someone from your line, from your lineage, from your seed, that will establish a kingdom that will last for all of eternity, an eternal kingdom. This one will be the Messiah. David, from your line will come the messiah and then we come to romans chapter 15 and we see that the root of jesse has come and that he will rise to reign almost a thousand years later but god always keeps his promises that the root of jesse would come who is that jesus born in a manger at bethlehem the promise that god made to david in second samuel chapter 7 came to fruition almost a thousand years later and here's our struggle So often we believe and we are aware of the promises of God. But there is often a gap between the promises and the payoff. We can quote God's promises. If I said, hey, everybody, get out a piece of paper and a pen and just write out all the promises of God, I bet most of us in here today could write out some promises that God has given us in his word. We are aware of the promise, but often we are awaiting the fulfillment of that promise. And this is where faith comes in. Because often we know that God promises to provide, but also I need a raise, and I don't have a job, and so I'm living in this gap between the promise and the payoff, and I know that God promises comfort. I know that the Bible says that he's the God of all comfort, and if he's the God of all comfort, why am I experiencing so much pain? I know that Jesus promised rest. He said, all you that are heavy and laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest, and God promises rest, but why am I experiencing exhaustion? And so often we're living in this, this gap, but we have to remain patient because the Bible says, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. The Bible puts it this way, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Let, let us hold on tight. Let us hold on fast it means to get a grip and don't let go. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful, that promised. That promised. He is faithful. I like this quote by Ian Bounce. He often talked about prayer and waiting. He said this, I think Christians fail so often to get answers to their prayers because they do not wait long enough on God. They just drop down and say a few words and then jump up and forget it and expect God to answer them. Such praying always reminds me of the small boy ringing his neighbor's doorbell and then running away as fast as he can go. And I like that. What he's saying is don't ding dong ditch God. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You need to remain patient and wait on the answer. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful, that promise. And this leads us to our fourth and final thought today. Do you have one more in you this morning? Here's the fourth thought. Jesus came to give abundant life. And this is the greatest news in all the world. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus came down to earth. This is why we celebrate Christmas, because he came to give you that Zoe, that abundant, overflowing life. And verse 13 is a beautiful description of that life. Notice it, verse 13. Can you see it? Now the God of hope, everybody say the God of hope. That means that he is the originator of hope. He's the author of hope. The God of hope shall fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. I love these words when he says he's going to fill you. You're going to abound with hope. The idea is overflowing. Anytime you see the words full or filled in the New Testament, it's not talking about just kind of like halfway filling. It's talking about overflowing, over the edge, more than enough. I remember growing up, my family, we went on vacation one summer and we were gone for two weeks. And we didn't know that when we left, someone in our household left the hose on in the backyard for two straight weeks. And so we came back home to quite the surprise. Our our entire yard was just completely uh, flooded. I thought it was pretty awesome. I was like, let's go out here and play and jump in the water. My dad uh, was not so uh, interested in doing that. He was not so happy about that. And uh, our our entire yard was completely flooded over, overflowing. This is the idea that Paul is talking about when he says you can abound with joy and peace. God doesn't want to just give you a little trickle here and there of joy. He doesn't want just to give you, here, here's a little spoonful of peace, and you can have a little bit of peace for five minutes, and maybe one day or maybe a week, and then it's going to be this constant cycle. He doesn't want to just give you a little. He says, I want you to abound. I want you to have all the joy and peace that you could ever want or imagine. Total spiritual satisfaction to be completely fulfilled. I want you to know today that if you are looking for fulfillment, if you are looking for satisfaction, look no further than the person of Jesus Christ because he can give it all to you. Abound. Overflowing. This is what Christmas is all about. How do we procure this kind of joy and peace? Well, he tells us in verse number 13. He says that the God of hope may fill you with joy and peace in believing. How we procure joy and peace is through faith, believing, trusting in his name. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 10, verse number 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt shall be saved. And today, maybe you walked into this room, maybe you're watching online today, and you've never had an encounter with Jesus Christ. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion, is that the message of salvation is all about grace. That we believe, for by grace are you saved through faith in believing. You wanna know how you can experience abundant life not just here and now, but forever, eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what he says in Romans 9, that God raised him from the dead. If you believe this, you will be saved. It doesn't say that you have to do uh, a certain class and you have to be baptized and you have to do, uh, uh, read your Bible and do all of these wonderful things. Hey, those are good things, but that is not what gets you to heaven. That is not what salvation is all about. And so many people, I talk to people on a weekly basis and, and if I ask uh, this question, uh, do you know for sure that if you were to die today, where you would spend forever? Would you go to heaven? Would you go to hell, are you not sure? And a lot of times people say, I think I'm going to heaven. And I'll say, How, why, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? And most predominantly the answer is because I try to be a good person. But here is the truth. The Bible says that our good deeds in the book of Isaiah are as filthy rags. If we try to be the best person that we can possibly be, we will always fall short of God's glory. There's a perfect standard that we will never reach. We'll fall short of that every single time. This is why Jesus came down to earth. He was born so that he could die on the cross in your place, in my place, to be the perfect substitutionary payment for us. He died for us. And then he rose again. And he rose again on the third day, defeating sin, death, and the grave and all those that call upon his name will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. See, there was this question that predominated first century thinking and this question would often come up and the question was this, what happens to us when we die? How many of you would say that's a fair question? We've all thought about this, I'm sure at one point or another. What happens when we die? And in the first century, there was no hope for life after death. There was no hope. And Paul even says this in his letter to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. He says, I don't want you to be in the dark on this. Concerning them which are asleep, concerning those that are passed away, those that have died. He says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. I'm thankful today that as a follower of Jesus, I don't have to fear death. I don't have to sorrow as one that has no hope because I know that I do have this hope and this hope is an anchor for our soul and I know that Jesus Christ is alive and well today and it's in him whom I put my trust and him who I put my hope and today we don't have to fear death. We don't have to sorrow as those without a hope. today we're living in a culture that is constantly afraid of death, but I want you to know that that we all have something in common and that is that death is inevitable for all of us. There's no avoiding or escaping death. The question is, where will you spend life after death? Because we know that death is not the end of the road. Death is simply a bend in the road. And Jesus came and he said, "I, I, I am the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said, I am the way to heaven. If you put your faith in me and trust in me, you can know that you have a home in heaven forever. I love what one author, J.I. Packer, said. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. From the cradle to the cross, we see God's purpose and his plan for redemption. And today you can trust him. Today you can put your hope in him. And today we can move forward in confidence knowing that hope is here because Jesus is here. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.